This is the Adam Ragusea Podcast, episode 46, and today I'm going to talk about a topic that lots of people want me to talk about and that I studiously avoid talking about because it makes me uncomfortable, and that topic is Alton Brown and his TV program, Good Eats. There's little, if anything, intrinsic about Good Eats that makes me uncomfortable. I don't regard Good Eats as especially problematic, as the kids say these days. My discomfort with Good Eats is highly particular to me. I struggle with Good Eats because I see too much of myself in it. And that's why I haven't watched it in like 15 years. And that's why I almost never talk about it. I talk about other cooking shows all the time. My last video was about Floyd on Fish. My last podcast was about Molto Mario, in part. I am, on some level at least, more interested in cooking media than I am in cooking. I made my first cooking videos as a kind of academic exercise. I was curious about the form of the cooking video. I wanted to understand it better, and one of the best ways to understand how they built Stonehenge is to try to stack 20-ton megaliths yourself. I made my first cooking videos, the uh, the steak and the roast chicken videos from 2017, if you want to go back and find them. I made those as a kind of experimental archaeology to learn how cooking shows are made and why they tend to be made the way that they are. This was a secondary motivation, of course. My primary motivation was to practice videography and editing, in which I had no prior experience. I had to make some videos for practice, but I made a video about how to roast a chicken because I'm interested in how people make videos about how to roast a chicken. The third such video that I made, the pizza video, randomly went viral, my life changed, and here we are four years later. I make cooking videos, but I also make videos about cooking videos, mostly because I'm actually more interested in that. Metacognition is kind of my thing. Most of my thinking is thinking about thinking, which is a kind of hellish way to live inside my head, but anyway. You may be mildly interested in my neuroses, but you're much more interested in your own issues, and you probably pull up my podcast chiefly because you think there might be some information in here that could help you with your own issues. One of your issues may be your own evolving feelings about Good Eats and Alton Brown. If you're in the older half of my audience, you almost certainly watched Good Eats because... The kind of person who would watch my programs is almost certainly the kind of person who would have watched Good Eats, assuming you've been alive long enough to remember, you know, television. I mean, I realize television is still going on today, but come on, it's over. Lots of things go on long after they're over. Most people who've been in long-term relationships can tell you that. If you watch me, you're probably the kind of person who watched Alton Brown, assuming that you were alive and watching cooking shows in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And if you've been alive that long, you've lived long enough for your feelings to have evolved about nearly every fixed point within the inertial frame of reference that is your life. A fixed point in this context is something that doesn't change even as you do change. For example, a song or a book or a movie or a TV show. This is one of the reasons we like periodically re-watching or re-reading something that we first encountered much earlier in life. It's not just nostalgia. Nostalgia is an affectionate, longing attraction to the past. I've never heard an evolutionary biologist talk about nostalgia, but I assume that nostalgia is the feeling our ancestors evolved to keep them near home, where they know it's safe. Because if it wasn't safe, they wouldn't still be alive to feel nostalgic about home. In the same way that we like the taste of familiar foods, because if it tastes familiar... That means it isn't acutely poisonous. If it was poisonous, you wouldn't be here to taste it again. I assume that nostalgia, or some relatively primitive version of nostalgia, is what drives salmon to swim upstream past the hungry bears and into the rivers where they were spawned when it's time for them to spawn their own young somewhere out of a memory of lighted streets on quiet nights. 
Please, some evolutionary biologist out there, let me know if fishy nostalgia is the reason for that delicious, delicious wild salmon harvest. AskAdamQuestions at gmail.com. Even though in this case, you have the answer, not a question. You could phrase your answer in the form of a question. That's a thing I saw on TV once. One reason to rewatch a TV show is to indulge your ancient primal feelings of nostalgia. Another reason is to track your own progress through life. You change, the show stays the same, and thus you can learn about how you've changed by watching the TV show and seeing how it hits you now compared to how it hit you back then. I just rewatched the 1971 Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory movie with Gene Wilder. We showed it to the kids the other night. Talk about problematic. (laughs) Roald Dahl has been in the news again lately, as publishers have tried to edit his novels to be more palatable to contemporary sensibilities. The truth is, his novels were never that palatable. In the first edition of the book... Oompa Loompas were not a fantasy race. They were pygmies who are a real people who really live in the Central African rainforests. And pygmy is, of course, an exonym. It's a label slapped on to people by an outsider, while the people being labeled call themselves something completely different and usually don't even consider themselves to be one and the same with other people being thusly labeled. They're not all one group. They just look like one group to an outsider. The so-called African pygmies are a whole array of historically hunter-gatherer societies that all look the same to, say, a European observer because they all tend to be shorter than other African peoples, such as the taller Bantu peoples who displaced and outcompeted many of the shorter Central African peoples during the Bantu expansion two or 3,000 years ago that got us the basic sub-Saharan ethnographic map we know today. Anyway, in Roald Dahl's first edition of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Oompa Loompas, who actually make Willy Wonka's chocolate and perform all of the other labor in the factory and who are arguably enslaved by Wonka, they were depicted as a real-world sub-Saharan people, which is especially awkward, shall we say, in the context of the real-world enslavement of sub-Saharan people by European people like me and like Roald Dahl, who was born only 82 years after the abolition of de jure slavery in his native Britain. This provoked outrage when his chocolate novel came out in 1964, The Civil Rights Era. People, especially here in the United States, thought the whole pygmy slaves thing was pretty messed up, especially for a kid's book. So for subsequent editions, Dahl changed the Oompa Loompas from little brown people to something else. In the movie, Little Orange People, played in that 1971 movie by actors with dwarfism, because it's perfectly fine to enslave little people as long as you paint them orange, I guess? Let's stipulate that just because something happens in a movie or in a book does not mean the movie or the book is endorsing it. Movies depict awful things all the time, and people generally don't blame the movies for this. They often praise the movies. Wow, what an important and harrowing depiction of that historical injustice. The Oscar goes to you. For some reason, that line of thinking is rarely applied to other art forms like songs. For example, if someone utters a slur in a song, that usually doesn't fly, even if the songwriter is saying it in the abstract to discuss it, or if the songwriter is voicing a character who may be a bad guy. When a bad guy in a movie uses a slur, people think, yeah, wow, a bad guy would say that kind of thing. Good movie so far. Let's see where this goes. But for some reason, we usually don't consume songs that way. There's a particular instance that comes to mind. The 1985 song, Money for Nothing by Dire Straits, contains a slur typically used to disparage gay and or effeminate men. And people often say that's a reason to not play Money for Nothing, a song that is playing on a classic rock station near you right now, I guarantee it. 
I think this is the wrong way to look at money for nothing because Mark Knopfler, the singer-songwriter of the song, is not the narrator of that song. Mark is singing the song, but he's performing the voice of a character, and that character is a knuckle-dragging, mouth-breathing meathead who delivers microwave ovens and custom kitchens and is mystified by these effeminate men he sees on MTV making millions of dollars and getting their chicks for free by playing their guitars. Men like Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits. Mark is the man the slur is being used to disparage. Even though Mark is singing the song, he's singing it from the perspective of a character. The character in the song is a bad guy, and therefore, yeah, he absolutely uses slurs. That's the kind of thing a bad guy would do. But for some reason, people don't extend Dire Straits the same moral line of credit they extend a movie or a novel about a bad guy. Perhaps because they don't take popular music as seriously, even when they should, which is ironically what the song Money for Nothing is really about. It's about Mark Knopfler's alienation from his audience. Mark is a very smart, very cultured, well-read man. Like many great singer-songwriters, he's really more of a writer than a musician. He just happened to be born into the rock and roll era, so he became a singer instead of a poet. You'd put people like Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen into that same category, even though, admittedly, Knopfler is obviously in a totally different universe as a guitar player. Similar singing voice, though. Anyway. Knopfler was frustrated that he was making rock music as a serious literary art, but it was being consumed as a light entertainment. And thus he found himself up on stage playing for throngs of custom kitchen delivering meatheads who don't understand his songs. That's what the song Money for Nothing is about. And ironically, the reason that supposedly more sophisticated people today want to cancel Money for Nothing is that they're consuming it as if it's a light entertainment as opposed to as a serious literary work. Because when you consume a serious literary work, you understand that things will happen and words will be said that the book isn't endorsing. It's merely depicting those things. Just because Willy Wonka is enslaving the Oompa Loompas doesn't mean that the author, Roald Dahl, is endorsing such behavior. It is simply the case that in this particular instance, the author, Roald Dahl, is actually endorsing the behavior. You can debate whether Willy Wonka is the hero of the story or if it's Charlie, but Wonka is definitely a hero. A complex hero, a dark hero, but a hero. The story tells us that the Oompa Loompas work for Wonka because he saved them from the vermicious canids, but no one ever asks the Oompa Loompas for their side of the story. And even if you do save someone's life, that doesn't obligate them and their children and their children's children to manufacture chocolate bars for your massive food and beverage multinational in perpetuity. Hey, Wonka, if you're looking to divest your holdings... Maybe give the factory to the Oompa Loompas instead of to a random white child named Charlie whom you literally found off the street with a literally random selection process? I mean, I'm a capitalist too, Wonka. It seems to me that capitalism has the best track record of providing the most material prosperity to the most people. But if you're going to give your factory away, why not give it to the people who work there? Is it so bad for the workers to own the means of production that you would give it instead to this literal random white boy? I should say, uh, Dahl's wife says that Charlie was originally supposed to be black, but anyway. It's also pretty shitty how Augustus Gloop's literally fatal character flaw is that he's carrying a little more adipose tissue than the other kids, and when invited into a candy factory, he behaves like, well, a kid in a candy store. For that, the story believes that Augustus Gloop, a child, deserves to be drowned in liquid chocolate under extreme hydraulic pressure. 
None of that struck me as disagreeable when I first saw this movie like 35 years ago, but it disagreed with me the other night when I watched it again. I assume this means that my morality has developed somewhat in the intervening years, and that's reassuring. That's a good thing to learn about myself. Also, a lot of the special effects didn't work on me, like when they ride that little riverboat in the Chocolate River through some high-speed tunnel of horrors. I don't know about you, but that scene scared the crap out of me when I was a little kid. It really looked to me like they were boating the river of chocolate at a terrifying speed. But when we watched it the other night with the kids, who were not scared at all, by the way, when we watched it the other night, all I saw was actors on a set throwing their weight from side to side, Star Trek banger style, as cheap optical effects whizzed by on a rear projection screen behind them. The effect didn't work on me at all. Is that because 40-year-old Adam is a savvier viewer than 5-year-old Adam? Or is it because special effects have gotten way better over the intervening years? Obviously, the answer is both, but it's interesting to consider which factor is more significant. This is one of the many interesting things you can explore about yourself and your life and the times in which you live by simply re-watching something. I'm scared to rewatch Good Eats because I fear I will see too much of myself in Good Eats. And that might not be very interesting to you. You're probably much more interested in your relationship to Good Eats than you are in my relationship to Good Eats. And given that my relationship to Good Eats is highly individual, highly specialized, you may not relate very well to all that I'm about to say about Good Eats. And therefore, this podcast might not be super interesting to you. You may be interested in me, but you're probably far more interested in yourself, as you should be. I do respect you. I respect that you're a curious person. I know that you're not entirely self-absorbed. You are interested in the perspective of other people, even if those perspectives are foreign to your own perspective. You are interested perhaps especially because these perspectives are so foreign to your own. Good on you for thinking beyond yourself and listening to this podcast. In contrast, I am going to be totally self-absorbed and talk for the remaining 40 minutes or whatever about my peculiar personal relationship with Good Eats and Alton Brown, as though hundreds of thousands of people will find me and my neuroses so damn interesting that they'll keep listening. But that's just the kind of monster I am. What does it say about you if you're willingly listening to this crap? Only a monster could love a monster. Shame on you. Actually, you might find some of my thoughts on Good Eats to be perfectly relatable because you're probably a guy basically like me, which is why you consume my programs. Like attracts like, which is why like 90% of you are literally guys, if my analytics are to be believed. It's not that I don't value you guys. I do value you very much. I just value the ladies in my audience a little more because... I like ladies, and because they represent my single biggest untapped market. I feel like Papa Het, James Hetfield, learning guitar and writing songs to get girls, but somehow things get twisted and he finds himself playing in front of wall-to-wall -wall sausage parties night after night until one day he writes a sweet little love song called Nothing Else Matters, and the female portion of the audience rockets up to like, wow, 16, 17%, and... Finally, the original ambitions are achieved. Hey, what is my nothing else matters? What video could I do that would bring in the ladies? Do I just need to be hotter? I think I need to be hotter, don't I? Even when I am looking particularly hot relative to how I normally look, I only ever seem to get thirsty DMs from gay dudes. Gay dudes have always loved me way more than the ladies. Or is it just that gay dudes are way more likely to send you a thirsty DM, and therefore it seems like there's more of them? These are the things I think about so as to avoid thinking about good eats. I don't want to think about good eats because I want to avoid considering the possibility that I'm just a dime store Alton Brown. Is there any other way I can stall? 
Oh yeah, I could talk about the uh, the sponsor of this episode, LMNT. Actually, it's pronounced Element, but it's spelled LMNT, and I want you to know that because this is this is an audio program, and I want you to go and find this fine sponsor, Element, spelled L-M-N-T. It's a delicious electrolyte drink. Mm, hold on a second. Mm. Delicious electrolyte drink for people who may need to replenish electrolytes, but they don't want all the sugar and other additives common in your typical retail sports drink. Electrolytes, as we have discussed previously, are the dissolved minerals that our bodies use to convey electrical signals through our nervous system, among other uses. Minerals like sodium, potassium, and magnesium, right? Those are your electrolytes. And there's reason to think that most people listening right now don't get enough potassium and magnesium. Sodium is a little more debatable, but certainly if you're doing vigorous exercise where you sweat out all your salt, or if you're on a highly restricted diet where you're trying to eat really clean, you could absolutely be salt deficient. And let me tell you, that feels horrible. You get dehydrated because your body has to purge water in order to maintain a certain water to sodium balance. You get headaches, brain fog, muscle cramps, all kinds of awful things happen when you're low on electrolytes. And when you get really low, you lose all neuromuscular control and you collapse into a heap, which is something that you may have seen happen to endurance athletes in competition. Electrolyte drinks are awesome for people who need them, but they tend to be filled with sugar and other junk, which is bad if the whole point of your vigorous exercise is to burn calories. So Element, spelled L-M-N-T, this is a company that has worked really hard to develop an electrolyte blend based on solid scientific reasoning. Go to their website, read all about it to inspect the, the primary sources they cite, etc., Element remains very delicious to drink. It's sweetened with stevia, which is an alternative sweetener that potentially has a lot of good health effects on its own, in addition to having essentially zero calories. And it's generally well tolerated, unlike other artificial sweeteners that can upset some people's innards. Beyond that, the flavorings are really simple. It's just citric acid, that kind of stuff. Very tasty, no colorings. And you can claim a free Element sample pack when you make any purchase with my link, drinkelement.com Adam. Try all the flavors they offer. You can get your money back, no questions asked if you don't like what you order. The free sample pack can be claimed by first-time and returning customers, and it's exclusively available through links like mine, drinkelement.com slash Adam. So drinklmnt.com slash Adam. Thank you, Element. Anyway, now I really do have to talk about Alton Brown, even though I don't want to because I'm afraid that I'm just a discount Alton Brown. The comparisons are obvious. The thick-rimmed acetate glasses worn to signify intellectual sophistication. I mean, only a real bookworm would deface themselves like that. Who values their ability to read over their ability to look pretty and to exert physical effort without fear of breaking their glasses? Wow, that's a really outdated social attitude from the dawn of corrective lenses like centuries ago, and yet it persists to this day, even though basically everyone wears glasses or contacts now, at least later in life. Anyway, me and Alton both have the hipster glasses to signify that we fancy ourselves as being particularly smart guys, working in a field, the culinary arts, where normally only Idiots and losers and women work. Am I right, boys? There's another very outdated attitude that's still with us, at least in some residual way. Me and Alton are both easy enough on the eyes for TV, but not so handsome as to undermine our authority. Everybody knows super good-looking people only get where they are because of their looks, and therefore they cannot be that smart or competent. Alton and I are both a little doughy because we're obsessed with food, and that makes us less threatening or challenging to our audience who are also obsessed with food. That's why they watch us. Alton and I are both men of diverse interests, and we like connecting food and cooking to other stuff in nature and history and culture, even stuff that seems really far afield, but we know it really isn't. Mark Knopfler's literary pretenses are totally relevant to a food podcast. Mark eats food, doesn't he? Alton and I are both interested in science, 
both because science is intrinsically interesting and also because we recognize that cooking needs more scientific rigor. When baby Alton and baby Adam were learning how to cook, someone told us, no, 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 you have to add the ingredients in this order, not that order, or whatever. And irritating kids like us said, wait, but why? Are you sure that actually makes a difference? Are you just going with some inherited wisdom here, or have you actually tested this by altering only one variable at a time and observing the outcomes? Oh, oh, you have? Okay, cool, good on you, but... Can you explain why adding the ingredients in that order makes a difference? Alton and I were both that kid, though it was more important when Alton did it because Alton did it first. He did it before me, obviously, because he's 20 years older than me. He's elder Gen X. I'm elder millennial. So if anyone ripped anyone off, I ripped off Alton, though Alton, of course, did not invent food science. Nicolas Appert invented food science, and Antoine Lavoisier, and Louis Pasteur, and Eustace von Liebig, and a bunch of other 19th century dudes invented the modern discipline of food science. Nor did Alton Brown invent science communication. I suppose you could argue that the astronomer Carl Sagan invented modern televisual science communication, along with guys like James Burke at the BBC. Alton has named both Sagan and Burke as influences. Alton Brown was not the first person to bring food science to the masses via the techniques of science communication. You could argue that honor goes to Harold McGee, who is not a trained food scientist, by the way, or any kind of trained scientist. He did go to Caltech, but he ended up majoring in literature. His PhD is in literature. He's a Keats scholar. But through it all, McGee was, like me, an inquisitive chowhound. Unlike me, McGee actually published some scholarly works on food science, such as his 1984 paper on whipping egg whites in copper bowls that I was quite excited to cite in my video about uh, copper cookware. 84 is also when his book came out, On Food and Cooking, The Science and Lore of the Kitchen. Alton calls McGee's book the Rosetta Stone of the culinary world, but it was a book, not a TV show. Alton Brown did what most of history's notable innovators have done. He grabbed an idea from over here, he combined it with an idea from over there, and he made something new in the world. Sometime in the early 1990s, Alton Brown says he wrote down three names on a piece of paper. Julia Child, Monty Python, Mr. Wizard. No-nonsense home cookery instruction plus zany, brainy comic energy plus maximally accessible TV science communication equals good eats. To bring his vision into reality, Brown needed skills. Fortunately, he already had some of them. He'd already gone to film school at the University of Georgia. Media was the family business. Brown's father, Alton Brown Sr., owned a radio station and a newspaper in the sparsely populated mountains of North Georgia. Content warning for talk about mental health crises. Skip ahead a minute if you'd rather not hear anything about suicide. Alton Brown Sr. killed himself when little Alton was 11 years old or thereabouts. Plastic bag over the head, asphyxiation. What's really wild about that story is that Alton has said he suspects his dad was actually murdered. He told the New York Times a few years ago that his dad had pissed off the wrong people by publishing something in his newspaper. No idea if that's true, obviously, but I lived in Georgia for a long time too, and the North Georgia mountains are totally the kind of place where that kind of intrigue would happen. That's Marjorie Taylor Greene country. Alton was a lifelong Republican, by the way, until the rise of Trumpism. He jumped ship at that point. He was also a very dedicated Christian, as people raised in those mountains tend to be, but he has spoken in recent years about a kind of spiritual reevaluation he's undergone. With his dad out of the picture and being an only child, Alton Brown grew up around women, his mom and his grandmother, May, who helped raise him, Ma May, from the biscuit episode of Good Eats. 
a big vibe that I get from Good Eats is that of a young man who's trying to be the man of the house, trying to use food and food traditions to create the kind of domestic familial stability that he maybe lacked a little growing up. The women in his life taught him how to cook, and he loved food, but Alton also loved TV and movies, so he went to film school. He left UGA uh, just short of graduation, but he got some work as a cinematographer. His most famous credit is R.E.M.'s music video for The One I Love. That's a hell of a credit, in my opinion. When Alton wrote down those names, Julia Child, Monty Python, Mr. Wizard, he decided he needed more culinary bona fides to make the show that he envisioned. So he enrolled at New England Culinary Institute in Montpelier, Vermont, an institution that sadly did not survive the COVID pandemic, by the way. There, Alton Brown learned some stuff that I never learned, like quote-unquote knife skills. He also internalized a lot of culinary school dogma, of which I don't think he ever purged himself over the course of making the original Good Eats. I haven't seen his later work, but there's moments in the original Good Eats series when I think Alton is simply parroting something that he learned in culinary school without questioning it enough. He also learned the airs of a cooking school instructor, the kind of almost militarized drill instructor way of talking. All right, men, we're going to do this and then we're going to do that because all right thinking people must always do that, etc. That's a vibe that I try really hard to avoid in my videos, though I know it sneaks in sometimes, probably via my Alton Brown influences, among others. I try to be more laid back than that. We're not going to the moon. This video is purely a social call. You know, just two adults getting a stew on, man. I try really hard to not instruct when I make recipe videos. I don't say, now I want you to do this and then this. I say, I'm doing this. And then I give you my reasons because I don't have standing to tell you to do anything. I'm just a man in his kitchen with a camera. I'm showing you what I do. What you do is your business. I suppose you could argue that Alton earned his air of authority by going to culinary school, but he's, he's not a chef and he'd be the first person to tell you that. He's a TV maker and a science communicator. He started off making two pilot episodes of Good Eats, the steak one and the potato one. He got them aired on WTTW, the PBS station in Chicago. Yes, Good Eats started off as a public broadcasting program, which totally makes sense. I wish it had stayed in public broadcasting. I think Alton Brown could have kept public TV in the U.S. a little more vital for a little longer if he'd stayed. But... Alton is a man who makes no apologies for getting himself paid, which is another way in which he has influenced me. He took Good Eats to this new cable channel in the world, the Food Network. His first season of the show, or first several seasons, they're very low-budget affairs, shot on a single, shaky, handheld camcorder, mostly in natural light. The editing style gives off a Dad is learning iMovie vibes. All the cheap digital transitions and the, the text on screen in whimsical, off-the-rack typefaces. You know when Alton would be talking in the show and then it would abruptly go to freeze frame and the theme music would play while text on screen explained some factoid related to the topic of the show? It only recently occurred to me that Alton probably did those to make the episodes time out properly. When you make TV, your episodes have to time out to exactly 22 minutes or whatever target the channel gives you to leave room for the commercials and to make sure they can roll the next show at exactly top of the hour or whatever. This is a creative constraint I have not had to deal with since my public radio days, thank God. It's the worst. There are a couple of Good Eats episodes where Alton pauses for title cards like every 30 seconds or so it feels. He must have been really under budget on runtime those weeks. 
But Good Eats grew into a really great show with really great production values, though Alton loved to put in little Easter eggs, little Easter egg filmmaking jokes about what a ragtag operation he was running. There's one episode where he puts something into the fridge to sit overnight. The picture dips to black. He comes back and he says, well, it's the next day. How do you know? New shirt. He changed his shirt so as to simulate the passage of time. I don't have to do that because I work by myself in my house. I can shoot something today and then shoot the rest of it tomorrow. No problem. Alton was working in a studio with a full-time crew paid by the day. In that situation, you shoot the first part of the recipe, then you shoot the rest of it with a different batch you got started the day before. Good Eats was on cable... And we didn't have cable TV in my house growing up because we lived too far out in the woods of central Pennsylvania. But when I was in high school, approaching graduation, my dad got one of the early miniature digital TV satellite dishes installed on the roof, and we got the Food Network, and I got hooked. I loved lots of early Food Network shows, but Good Eats was tops. Of course I would love Good Eats. I was a nerdy, know-it-all white boy who liked Monty Python and similar nerdy, zany comedy, and I was a major chowhound. Here's a way that I could describe the appeal of Good Eats that is very unflattering to me, and perhaps also to Alton, but I think it's part of the truth. Alton Brown showed me a way that I could get into the kitchen and cook and be into food in a way that wouldn't be feminizing. He showed me how a man could walk into a space historically delegated to women, the home kitchen, and that man could show that woman how a man cooks by bringing in order and rigor and systems that was appealing to a young man like me. I developed a persona as a zany know-it-all. I think I could have become that guy even without Good Eats, but Good Eats certainly contributed. Alton Brown, more than any other single person, I reckon, brought the precision of the modern high-level professional kitchen into the home kitchen. And in my opinion, that is a mixed legacy. I think people like me overlearned that lesson and started to overthink things in the kitchen in a way that was really pretty obnoxious. You do not need a gram scale to do anything in the home kitchen. It can help. I get mine out sometimes, but good God, we're not launching rockets here. We're just making a plate of risotto for dinner. And Alton's hyper-confident, hyper-precise way of explaining things often lulled me, and perhaps you, into a false sense of security. Alton Brown makes mistakes, just like any other mortal human, but he gives instructions with such absolute authority that you can end up following those instructions long after the point at which you should have realized they were wrong. Example, risotto. In his risotto episode, Alton delivered the conventional wisdom that rice grains need to rub up against each other over the course of the cooking in order to shed free starch into the liquid, thus thickening it. And as we have recently discussed, that is not true. You can stir risotto just once at the very end, and you will get the exact same creamy effect. That's not what I'm dinging Alton for. I'm dinging him for what he said after he started the rice and worked in his first dose of stock. He said, the key now is to keep the heat as low as you can get it. So there I was in college trying to make my first risotto and I pulled the heat down all the way low as Alton said and nothing was happening. The rice did not absorb stock at that low temperature. I thought, surely I'm doing something wrong. Alton couldn't be wrong. He speaks with such authority, plus the glasses. So I just stood at the stove and kept stirring, assuming that something would happen, but it never did. I think I stirred that risotto for hours, literally hours, waiting for it to cook. Shame on me. 
Now, I usually cook risotto on medium heat or even higher. You can do it on high heat as long as you stir really frequently to keep anything from sticking to the bottom and burning. Why did Alton say to keep the heat as low as you can get it? I don't know. Might have just been a script mistake. I have written scripts where I literally wrote the opposite of what I meant to say due to a typo or a brain fart or whatever. This might also be a case of good advice for a gas stove being bad advice for an electric stove. Gas stoves, like the kind Alton used, cannot hold a very low temperature or else the flame goes out. Low on a gas ring isn't that low. Whereas low on an electric stove can be incredibly low. That's why you don't need to use a double boiler as much on an electric stove for things that require really gentle cooking. I don't know, and I'm certainly not trying to discredit Alton Brown here. We all make mistakes. But every time I sit down to write out a recipe, I think of that night I spent stirring risotto for hours in vain over low heat. I am terrified that one slip of the keys on my part is going to completely ruin someone's dinner, and I guarantee you it has. The lesson I've tried to learn from Good Eats is humility. Alton was always talking about how this is the best way to do something, and this is the worst way, and this tool is the best, and this one is a unitasker, and no one should own it, and it's a particularly male way of communicating that used to be very common, and I understand how Alton learned it, but it is bad. It's the proverbial false confidence of the high-status white man. Men like Alton and me were taught that the way you establish credibility is you act like you know it all, even if you know you don't. You fake it until you make it. And this is bad for many reasons, the most significant being that we simply don't know it all and people deserve to know that. Kenji had a lot more know-it-all vibes earlier in his career. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt is probably the true inheritor of Alton's legacy. He's number two in the pantheon of people who brought precision and rigor into the home kitchen. And I'm a huge Kenji fan, always have been, but I do like how he's been mellowing in middle age. If you watch his YouTube channel now, Kenji is way more laid back than he used to be, at least in his you know published output. Don't know who he is as a real person, but... In his published output, he's way more apt to say, I'm doing this way today because I don't really know. You have to make this sauce some way, and I haven't systematically tested which way is the best way, so I'm doing it this way because, just because. You got to do it some way. I've tried really, really hard to be chill in the way that Kenji has chilled in recent years. When you sit down to create a piece of instructional content, you feel obligated to give a reason for everything you do. And when you don't have a reason, you're tempted to make one up in order to maintain your air of authority. I have 100% done that myself, at least in my earlier videos. But since then, I've tried really hard to loosen up and to say, I'm doing it this way today because... That spoon happened to be at the top of the drawer, and next time I'll use a different one. Use whatever spoon you want. Alton Brown taught us how to cook with authority and precision. In picking up the ball where Alton dropped it off, I have tried to cook and to teach with more humility and less rigidity. I'm not saying I'm better than Alton Brown. I'm saying I had the advantage of coming after Alton Brown, and I have the benefit of learning from his successes and his mistakes. I do see myself as pretty different from Alton, though that didn't stop lots of people from comparing me to Alton when I first hit the scene. We make sense of new things in our world by comparing them to the things we already know. Think of your favorite musician. Go back and read the earliest published reviews of this musician, and you will probably see them getting compared to some previous act in a way that seems completely insane in retrospect, like Christina Aguilera. When she first hit the scene, everyone compared her to Britney Spears. 
oh, she's a pretty young woman who sings sexy pop songs, and it's the late 1990s, and Britney Spears is queen of the world, so she's the standard against which we judge every other superficially similar artist. But now we know the comparison between Britney and Christina was completely absurd, right? I mean, I love Britney as much as the next 90s kid, but Christina has more vocal talent in the frosted tips of her hair than Britney has in her whole body. And they both have totally different images and vibes and songs, etc. Did we just gradually learn that Christina and Britney are really different as we got to know Christina better? Or did Christina change. Maybe she was a bit of a Britney knockoff when she first came out with Genie in a Bottle, a song she didn't want to record, but the label convinced her to do it anyway because they wanted another Britney Spears. The answer is all of the above, I'm sure. I'm sure I was something of a dime store Alton Brown when I first started making videos about food, but as I grew and found my voice, I became more and more Adam Ragusea and less and less anybody else. But on the other hand, I was also always different from Alton. All you simply needed was more time to learn about me. I'd also point out that not all of the similarities between people are a case of one person stealing a vibe from the other. Sometimes people are similar because they were cut from a similar mold. The way that I talk isn't necessarily Alton Brown speak, it's just nerdy, zany white guy speak. I am's what I am's. But maybe I am stealing far more directly from Alton Brown than even I realize, and that's why... I will not go back and rewatch Good Eats. I don't want to know. Or maybe it's just that for one reason or another, Alton Brown and I are just really similar guys, and so watching him feels like watching myself. And I get uncomfortable when I watch myself. Having to look at myself all the time is one of the worst parts of this otherwise dream job I have. Maybe that's why looking at Alton makes me uncomfortable. I'm transferring my self-loathing onto him, poor guy. Alton is not poor, though. Or if he is, it could only be the result of terrible money management, which I doubt. The man gets himself paid. And for that, I applaud him. I applaud him for doing all the infomercials he's done for Shun Knives and General Electric Appliances and Welch's Grape Juice and Cargill Kosher Salt. Alton is a proto-influencer. The way that we sell products for our sponsors on the internet today, Alton did that on TV 20 years earlier. You may loathe that part of Alton Brown's legacy, but I would simply remind you, as I often do, that ads pay for content so that you don't have to. No ads, no show. Alton Brown saw that the economic model of television was approaching a collapse, and he opened up alternative revenue streams that allowed him to survive and to thrive in the new internet era economy. Get yourselves paid, kids. Get yourselves paid. Job security is an illusion. Though, Alton Brown's enduring popularity with his core audience of fellow Gen Xers is striking. I was visiting my boomer parents at their house recently, and they had on broadcast television, which we obviously don't have in our home. And during the commercial break, Alton Brown came on the TV to advertise Nureva, a brain health supplement implicitly marketed toward aging adults who are having increasing trouble finding their keys or remembering why they walked into that closet in the first place. What did I come in here to get? Anyway, Alton's Nureva contract is an indication of how your audience ages with you, if you're good enough to retain them over the years. When I first went pro on YouTube, somebody asked me if I'm worried that I'll get too old for an internet audience, and I said, yeah, I worry about everything, that's just me, but the thing about me getting older is that everyone watching me is also getting older at the exact same rate. 
if I can hold on to them, they will age with me. There's nothing inherently youthful about the social internet. See Facebook. I will be very lucky if I can maintain the kind of career Alton Brown has pioneered. I owe a lot to the man, as does Kenji, as does Ethan Schlebowski, as does Dan from America's Test Kitchen and Grant from Chef Steps and a million other people you probably watch. People who do basically what I do are now a dime a dozen, which is good. I think we make fun, useful content. And we're all ripping off Alton Brown in the same way that Alton Brown was ripping off Harold McGee and Carl Sagan. We all stand on the shoulders of giants, and we are therefore able to reach a little higher for something a little different. Is anybody standing on my shoulders? Are there any kids on TikTok or whatever who cite Adam Ragusea among their influences? I kind of doubt it, even if it's true, because I am not cool. I am many things, but cool is not one of them. And usually kids want to cite cool people as their influences. No, no, I wasn't influenced by you too. I was influenced by The Clash, even though that's a lie. And I was totally more influenced by you too than The Clash, but The Clash are way cooler than you too, so I say The Clash. If only I was as successfully uncool as you too. I'll have to settle for being me, which is a pretty good thing to be. Because I have you, the kind of person who listens to me ramble for an hour. You've done it again, and I thank you. We'll be back to audience questions, I think, next week. I've got a lot of good ones piling up, but you can always send something to askadamquestions at gmail, ideally in the form of a video or audio file. On Thursday, on YouTube, we are making legit Bavarian-style soft pretzels with a real lye solution made with sodium hydroxide. I plan to give myself a small chemical burn on the inside of my left arm, just so that you can see what happens if you aren't careful. We'll see how that goes. Make good choices. Better choices than mine. Talk to you next time.